0: All right, so Exodus 22, let's read together. You can follow along. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, He shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbors money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whoever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey an ox a sheep <clears throat> or any animal to keep and it dies is hurt or driven away no one seeing it then an oath of the lord shall be between them both that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods and the owner of it shall accept that and he shall not make it and he shall not make it good but in fact, if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner. If it is torn into pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it an evidence and he shall not make good what was torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, He shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price to her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. And if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in and what will be that? I'm sorry, and it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first fruit of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Father, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for your word and the gospel that is recorded on these pages and in this word. Lord, open our hearts and open our minds. And by your spirit, illuminate this word to us that it would change and transform us. For your glory, we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So we read this, and we're getting into Exodus, and after Exodus, we get into the books such as Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. These first five books of the Bible were recorded by Moses in Genesis Genesis means beginning. Exodus is the Exodus out of Egypt. It is the book that chronicles Egypt's delivery from slavery or Israel's delivery from slavery in Egypt. 400 years of bondage in Egypt. The Exodus chronicles that. These books, these first five books of the scripture were written by Moses during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. And so we see in the Exodus now, there is this recording of these laws and these ordinances. And we read these, for instance, the chapter we just read, and we can see some things that, that we can say, well, okay, I can understand, I can see how that practically applies We're going to read other things and you say, well, I just don't really even see how that applies to me because we live in such a different time today than in the day that these things were written. And this is the danger that we fall into if we don't understand the purpose of the Scripture and what the Scripture is teaching us, what is recorded in there, not just laws and ordinances. These are very practical in a sense because these were the laws and ordinances that Israel, they were to live by. This governed their society. It governed their culture. But what happens when societies and cultures change? What happens when I don't have a cow or a sheep or a goat for my neighbor to steal or someone to come and steal from me? What happens if, if, if I don't even live in a place where I have to mow my grass, much less raise animals? How, how does this apply to me? And if we don't understand that the principles, let me just say this, that the gospel is timeless. Because this is about the gospel. This isn't just about antiquated laws and ordinances. This is about The gospel, this is about our worship of God. This is about our relationship with God. So this chapter blends into one and affirms the responsibility we have toward God and to our neighbor. So there's a lot in here that deals with how we interact with people how we honor people, how we respect people, how we disrespect people, how we dishonor people, and in doing that, how that affects our relationship with people, but but more importantly, how it affects our relationship with God. And so as we read these chapters, in, in particular this chapter here, and we just look at this chapter and these laws and ordinances that are recorded here, we look at these and we see that There is this blending of responsibility. I have a responsibility toward God. That means I have a responsibility toward my neighbor. So these are not separate responsibilities, but they're one and the same. Our worship of God encompasses the whole of our life. So we come here for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning and we call this worship. But this cannot be the only time of your worship. If it is, you've missed the entire point of what worship is. Because worship is not just a couple of hours on a certain day of the week. Worship is your life before God. Worship is your waking. It is your sleeping. It is your thinking. It's your talking. It's your walking. It is everything you do. That is the expression of your worship, whether you realize it or not. Now, if you know that and you're purposeful in that and you say, yes, that's how I worship God. Great. But if you don't know that and you're not conscious of that and you're just come in here for a couple of hours on a Sunday, but then you're just living the rest of your life however, and then you come back here the next Sunday to kind of do your penance. No, we don't do penance. We repent, but penance or repentance is not just something we do when we come to worship on a Sunday. It should be the continuous Attitude and understanding and expression of our life. That we have the opportunity to repent. We have the opportunity to worship. We have the opportunity to humble ourselves. We have the opportunity to exalt God, to magnify Him all the time. So our worship encompasses the whole of our life, the relationships and the interactions that we have with one another are a direct reflection of our worship and of our relationship with God and our love for God. So in Matthew chapter 22 verses 35 through 40 this records for us a question that was asked of Jesus. So the the Jesus so in Jesus day there were the the Jewish religious leaders were divided into two groups basically Sadducees and Pharisees and the Pharisees were the lawyers so they literally were this is, they, that's what they were they were lawyers they made the laws they interpreted the laws so God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai and the children of Israel and from that from Moses and the elders this tradition you move into the Babylonian period where they were dispersed in captivity and the synagogue system became established. And, and then you have these lawyers, and that's literally what they were. They would be equivalent to like our legislators or a lawyer today who, who interprets the law for us. And then there was this other group, the Sadducees. They were also lawyers, they also interpreted the law, but they had two fundamental belief systems, one very different belief system. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection and the Pharisees did. And so in Matthew chapter five, or Matthew chapter 22, verses 35, you can turn over there if you'd like, you'll see that Jesus was just asked this question by the Sadducees about the resurrection. They're trying to trap him. They say, Jesus, suppose a man marries a woman and then she, he dies without giving her a child, and the brother is obligated under the law to take the, the wife and give her a child, but suppose he marries her, but then he dies, and, and so there's seven brothers, and they all die, and, and then when they all go to heaven, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, well, you don't rightly divide the scripture. You don't really understand the scripture. And so, basically, he makes this i mean it was so amazing it said he, he answers her question he says you don 't understand the scriptures, it's not the giving of a way in marriage in heaven. There's not going to be marriage in heaven the way that you think of it here on on earth. And and the Bible says they were amazed at his answer because no one could stand up against him when they would try to trap him with these questions. And then this lawyer, it says in in Matthew 22, verse 35, this lawyer comes and he asks Jesus a question. And he says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And here is the answer that Jesus gives, recorded for us in verses 35 through 40. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, Rabbi, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, you might not realize it, but Jesus quotes from two different places in the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy first, and then he quotes from Leviticus. And when Jesus answered and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, he quotes what's called the Shema. Now, these lawyers understand, these lawyers would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. So it's kind of like Jesus hanging on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the very first line of Psalm 22. So when Jesus quotes the very introductory line of Psalm 22, those Pharisees that are standing there watching him, they know the rest of the psalm. And Psalm 22 describes in stark graphic detail of what happens to this man that is obviously being crucified. So when Jesus quotes this here, these Pharisees know exactly where Jesus is coming from. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, this is where Jesus quotes from. It begins out in verse 4. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then it goes on in the following verses and it says, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This was committed to memory. This this could be recited without even thinking. And so when Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, the rest of that was ingrained in the hearts and the minds of these people hearing Jesus. Jesus when he answers this question, he links these two scriptures together, one in Deuteronomy and one in Leviticus. The scripture from Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And that verse says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus in answer to this question, which is the greatest commandment, teacher? His answer was the greatest, the first and the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it that you should love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus tied together these verses from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He tied them together to give us the essence of all the law and all the prophets. And Jesus said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. That's quite a statement. Now you and I might not realize what a statement that is, but that was quite a statement by Jesus. To say that all the law and all the prophets hang on these two principles right here to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself and later just before his death it's recorded for us in John 13 John 13 records what Jesus said to his disciples what he told them during that last Passover Seder the last supper before Jesus went he left that supper they go into the garden of Gethsemane And that is where Jesus prays, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed that three times, and then the crowd came, the armed guards came, the the Roman troops came with the Jewish leaders, and they arrested Jesus and took him away. Well, just preceding that moment when Jesus is arrested. He's in the upper room with his disciples. They have the say to remember he washes their feet. They're sitting there at the meal and he's teaching them and he's telling them I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that Jesus says to them that is really quite amazing is recorded for us in John 13 verses 13 through 35. I mean 34 and 35. John 13 Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. It's a new commandment, but it's not a new commandment. And John writes this in his first epistle. It's kind of a play on words. We don't have any new commandment, but a new commandment I give you. The commandment from the beginning has always been what? To love God with all your heart. And out of loving God, and if we truly love God, we are going to what? We are going to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus says it a different way here. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Now what, they didn't connect right there in the upper room with Jesus. They just had the Seder together. He's washed their feet. He's been with them. They've been with him for three to three and a half years. And they've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen him feed thousands of people from just a few loaves and some fish. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him do the most amazing things. And he tells them this, that you love one another even as I have loved you, but they're not realizing the demonstration of love that Jesus is getting ready to show them when he hangs on the cross and dies there having given up his body and shed his blood to atone for their sin, to take upon himself the wrath of God that was rightly deserved by those disciples and rightly deserved by all of us. So when Jesus says that we are to love even as he has loved us, when we understand what Jesus did for us, and giving himself for us. That makes love, it paints love, it shows us love in a whole different light. Maybe even than we've understood from the scripture. Certainly in a whole different light than the love that the world talks about and the world defines for us. And understand that love is much more than good deeds doing kind things kind things and good deeds will not get you to heaven because we are not saved by our goodness Isaiah the prophet it's recorded he says your good works are like filthy rotten rags in the sight of God I can't even describe to you in reality what the scripture says there because it's pretty graphic and pretty gross these aren't rags that you change your oil with. These are different kinds of rags. The Bible says that's what your good works are to God. But yet Jesus in the scripture commands us to love one another. Even as we have been loved by God. That love for one another is born only from the love of God. We cannot love God and hate our brother. We cannot truly love our brother if we do not have the love of God abiding in our heart. For God is love and without God we have no love. So let's go to Exodus 22 and let's look at some of these ordinances, some of these things. So for instance, in the first 15 verses, these first 15 verses of Exodus 22 outline our responsibility concerning our neighbor and property. Seems pretty practical, right? Things like the first four verses deal with theft. If, if a thief comes into your house at night, you have the right to defend yourself and defend your property. And if you strike him and he dies, there will be no fault on your part. You will be acquitted. But... But if you strike him and kill him in the daytime, then there has to be a trial. There has to be, you're not just going to automatically be acquitted. So it outlines when deadly force is allowable to protect one's property and when it's not. It outlines when the law concerning restitution, it outlines, for instance, if you steal an ox, you've got to give five back. If you steal a sheep, you've got to give four back. So it gives us the the laws concerning restitution and what full restitution was required based on the item or the animal that was taken. And if a thief was not able to pay full restitution, he would be sold into slavery. Remember, we talked about slavery, vastly different than the system of slavery we're familiar with as Americans having fought a civil war, you know, 150 years ago vastly different kind of slavery but if someone was unable to pay their restitution they were sold into slavery to make good on those things that were taken to fulfill their restitution then verses 5 through 15 these verses deal with the loss of real property due to negligence or irresponsibility or malicious actions It even deals with the loss of property for reasons that are beyond one's control. So in verses 5 and 6 regarding crops, if your animal gets out and eats your neighbor's crop, you've got to restore to your neighbor what was eaten by your animal from the best of your crop. So what if your neighbor's not a very good farmer and his crops really aren't up to par compared to your crops? and your animal gets out and eats his crop, his poor stand of wheat, well, the law says you've gotta give back to him from the best, but what you might be tempted to do is maybe give him some wheat back from, you know, well, I'll give you wheat equal to to your poor wheat. No, no, no. The Bible says no, you gotta take from the very best of yours and give back and restore to your neighbor Regardless of how poor, or what quality was taken. So you take your best and you restore to your neighbor. Do we see a principle in this? What did God the Father give to us? Did he give his best? He gave his only begotten Son. The blood of bulls and goats covered man's sin for centuries leading up to Jesus. It was the grace of God that covered the the blood of those animals, didn't do anything to sin. It was God's grace. This is why the Bible says, God says, I don't delight in the blood of bulls and goats. It's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he didn't say, behold the Lamb of God who covers up the sin of the world. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when property was entrusted to someone and it was lost or it was stolen, it had to be restored. If there's any kind of trespass or quarrel between two people, here in verse 9, it's specifically talking about an animal or, or really any item claimed by two parties. They go before the judges to determine who, who will be required to pay restitution. If I give you my animal to keep while I go on a trip and you let my animal die because of your negligence or irresponsibility, you have to restore to me. But if something happens beyond your control, if wild animals killed it, if it just, who knows what happened to it, it was here, it's gone, we don't know, no one saw. You make an oath to God and say, I I swear before God that I did not steal your animal, I did not do anything with your animal. I have to accept that. But if I find out later on that you indeed did steal my animal, guess what? You got to pay. So all of these provisions are here. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or it dies or it breaks, the owner not being there, you got to restore. But if I bring my ox over to plow your field, and I'm with my ox, and my ox stumbles and breaks his leg, I'm with my ox. I'm responsible. My neighbor, though I'm plowing my neighbor's field, my neighbor doesn't have to pay me for my ox. Or if I hired my ox out, and my neighbor paid me to borrow my ox, and the ox gets hurt. The higher price, whatever he paid, that that covers it. So you see very practical principles that we can look at and at first glance we might think, well, what in the world does it have to do with us today? That just doesn't even apply to my life. Well, what about the next verses, verses 16 through 31? These verses call God's people to holiness for the sake of loving God and loving one another. So in verse 16 and 17, it talks about the honor of virgins. And in, in the honor of virgins speaks to the sanctity of marriage. Marriage as created by God points us to Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, it says, We are member of, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. And a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says, I speak a mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So we see that God's creation and institution of marriage in the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve, it wasn't man's idea, it was God's idea. And God instituted marriage between a man and a woman because that marriage was giving us a picture of something that would be ultimately fulfilled, not just on the earth between a man and a woman, but it would be ultimately fulfilled between Christ and his church. That's why the church is called the bride of Christ. He is the head, we are the body. He is the groom, we are the bride. And Paul says this is what marriage has always been about. It is a picture of Christ and the church. So when we come to this ordinance here, that talks about someone who entices a virgin and lies with her and then dishonors her. There is an obligation there for the honor of that woman. So these ordinances are not They're not just about our natural protection to protect our assets. They are spiritual principles that are conveying something much greater to us. Verse 18, you shall not allow a witch to live. The occult is is spiritual opposition to the living God in the true worship of God. Verse 19, anyone who lies with an animal must be destroyed this paints a picture of sexual perversion in its most spiritually abominable form that makes a mockery of sex and sexuality as God has ordained it within the context of marriage for the purpose of procreation and pleasure. Sex is pleasurable because God made it that way. But it is to be enjoyed within the context that God gives us in his scripture. And this verse paints a picture of the very opposite end of the spectrum of what that intimate act should be. Verse 20. Idolatry and false worship brings destruction to a people. Verses 21 through 27 deal with social justice. That's a pretty common buzzword today. Everybody's into social justice. The problem is, much of what we talk about in terms of social justice really isn't social justice. It's just political rhetoric. These verses deal with social injustice against those truly in need, specifically the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, the poor. And social injustice toward these that are most vulnerable in our culture is disobedience to God's command and will bring God's judgment. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 3 through 5, this is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah proclaims to God's people. Let's turn over there real quick. I want to read this to you. Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah prophesied for over 20 years, warning Israel of the coming destruction of the Babylonian invasion. And in Jeremiah 22, verses 3 through 5, he gives them some of the reasons why that destruction came. Jeremiah 22, 3 through 5, Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. And that's exactly what happened. The king of Babylon sent his armies in. They came in through the gates, and they took over that city. They carried away a nation captive, and ultimately because of Israel's continued disobedience, they came again and they destroyed the temple and destroyed the city. And one of the reasons, or some of the reasons that destruction came was because of social injustice for those toward those most vulnerable in our society along with spiritual adultery the continuation or the generational false worship. Verse 28, we're commanded to respect God and His divinely appointed authority. Don't curse a ruler, the ruler of, of God's people. Don't curse God. Verses 29 through. 30, give us this principle of the first fruits belonging to God. Moses will write much more about this later on. This is a principle of our worship, that we are to joyfully give back to God because those fruits and that increase came from God, just as it still does today. You might not grow crops, you might not have vineyards, but whatever increase you live off of that comes to you, don't think for one moment it did not come because of the grace of God. In the last verse, God calls his people to be holy. He said, you shall be holy men to me. So this is a call to holiness. This is a call to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. So you see in these ordinances listed here in this verse that that it will talk about how we react and interact with one another, then it will talk about our worship to God. And it goes back and forth because it's weaving for us this tapestry that shows us that our worship of God and our interaction and relationship with one another cannot be separated. They are one and the same. To love God is to love your neighbor. It is to respect and protect your neighbor and his property as you would your own. To deal honestly and honorably concerning your neighbor and uphold the witness to God's name. To love God is to love your neighbor. To love God with all your heart is to love all that he has ordained and established. It is to love what God loves and it is to hate what God hates and to shun those things that he has called sin. Our worship of God and our love for one another can only come from the love of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Look at this. John, the same John who wrote the gospel of John, the same John who recorded those words of Jesus, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. That John who penned those words of Jesus in the gospel of John wrote this letter called 1 John and he wrote these words in chapter 4 Verses 7 through 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Listen, church, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In the same chapter in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment but he who fears has not been made perfect in love we love him because he first loved us Jesus told his disciples you did not choose me but I chose you John one of his disciples writes here we love him Because he first loved us. Are you fearful? Then know that God loves you with a perfect love. With a complete love. And it is his perfect and complete love. That he has given to you in Jesus Christ. That is to cast out all of your fear. God recorded these ordinances, these laws, not to make us righteous, not so that we could keep them and become righteous, because keeping them does not make us righteous. Remember, I say this all the time, and it is the truth. It's what Paul confirms in his letter to the Romans. God did not give man the law so that man could become righteous through keeping the law. God gave man the law so that man would see his need to become righteous to be made righteous because God will only accept us in righteousness. And if we have no righteousness in and of ourselves, then how can God accept us? The same way he accepted Abraham, he imputed to Abraham righteousness. It's what he does For you and for me by grace through faith in Jesus Christ he imputes to us his righteousness the law reveals my need the law reveals that I am unrighteous and I am unable to become righteous because I cannot keep this law and even when they thought they were keeping the law Jesus comes along and he says yeah you're keeping it on the outside but you're not keeping it on the inside because your thoughts betray you. Your heart betrays you because the moment you break the law in your heart and in your mind, you've broken it. Some people think Jesus came and he lowered the standard. No, he didn't come He to lower the standard. He didn't even come to raise the standard. He just came and showed us what the true standard was. And he reinforced that the law was never meant to save you. The law was meant to bring you to me, the one who can save you. That's why Paul writes in Galatians, the law was my schoolmaster that brought me to Christ. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Love is not just an emotion. Love is a person. And he was personified when God put on flesh and came to this earth and manifest himself in Jesus Christ. God is love. And if you love God, You are commanded to love your neighbor and you cannot love your neighbor apart from the love that can only come from God. So I want to invite you to come to the table of the Lord. This is a table of His love. This is a table that demonstrates for us by His death, His love. It is a table that we celebrate that love by acknowledging his life. So it's demonstrated for us by his death and it's celebrated together in his life. Because Jesus didn't just die for us, he rose for us. And in his death, we too can die. I have been crucified with Christ. And in his resurrection, we too can live. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The words of the Apostle Paul. If you've never trusted in Jesus, trust in Him. Jesus said with the seed of faith, the size of a grain of a mustard plant. You can move a mountain. It is that seed of faith that will move the mountain of your sin, cast it into the sea. God will impute to you His righteousness in Jesus Christ. As you trust Christ, come to the table. Here's your charge. The love of God was manifested toward us by God sending his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, for we did not, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Only from his love can we truly love. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we can only do that as we love God with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our mind and soul. And Jesus commands us to love one another even as he has loved us. He died for us that we may live for him. Live and love for his glory. Amen.